we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics. How can we reach out in our world without watering down the gospel? How can we, in a culture like we're living in, reach out and reach people who are living in the type of culture we're living in? Is the Christian gospel and the Christian biblical message, are we able to take it and effectively reach people? Or has the world just gone beyond the potential of being Christian? Is our culture so far gone? Is society so jacked up that there's no way that we can possibly reach people? When we come to Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, we get one of the most encouraging and most important church examples living in a culture in crisis and yet applying the message of Christ to a culture in crisis effectively. And the church, we call it the church in Antioch. And I got to tell you, there's two major churches that are talked about in the book of Acts. We've talked about one of them for months now, which is the church in Jerusalem. All right, We met that church in Acts chapter 2. And we love that church. But that church, as good as it was, it wasn't quite complete. But the second church that Acts talks about, which we'll be discussing now from here all the way to the end of the book of Acts, is the church in Antioch. And this church I find to be a more complete church than the church that we learn about in Acts chapter 2. Now that might surprise some of you, because many of you have heard sermon upon sermon upon sermon on the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. But few of you have heard on a regular basis about this church in Antioch. Now, let me show you how relevant this church in Antioch is for you and I. Number one, take your Bibles and hold your place there in Acts and go to the contents. Go to the contents in your Bible. You know the place where it lists all the biblical books? Go to the table of contents. Everybody's got a Bible with the table of contents. And it kind of outlines kind of the books in the Bible. And you go to, in the table of contents, you go to the New Testament books, all right? And it lists all the New Testament books in the order that they, that they, have, uh, that they have listed them. And in the New Testament, the list of books there, if you go down and scan your eyes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, that's where we're at right now, the book of Acts, then you've got Romans. Now look at First and Second Corinthians. Now... That is letters written to a church in a city called Corinth, okay? And so Christians living in a city called Corinth, so naturally the letter to the church in Corinth is going to be called Corinthians. Then you've got Galatians, same thing, a church in Galatia. Then you've got Ephesians, that's to a church in the city of Ephesus. Then you've got Philippians, that's to a church in Philippi. You got Colossians and and Thessalonians, the same thing. All of these are written to different churches in different cities in the Roman Empire. Now, go back to the book of Acts. And when we talk about the church in Antioch, all of those cities were reached, everybody say reached, by the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch started a church planning ministry, a missionary endeavor And out of this church, the gospel went out, it reached the city of Corinth. It reached the city of Philippi. It reached the city of Ephesus. It reached the city of Corinth. You understand what I'm saying? We wouldn't have most of our New Testament had it not been for the church in Antioch. That is a wow. 
Now, here's the second reason why the church in Antioch is so important for you and I. It's the first really Gentile-reaching church, okay? And guess what most of us are? What are we? We're Gentiles, and we live in Gentile places. So when we come to Acts chapter 11 and we look at this church in Antioch, we wonder how in the world did the church in Antioch reach a Gentile world with the message of Jesus Christ? Now, let's start, and let me read this, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And uh, let's just start kind of digging in here. It says here, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except for Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here we go. We're in Antioch. Luke is concerned about regional, geographical places. Where is Antioch? Let's talk about this city real quick. Antioch is in Syria. So if you travel up the coast of, of the Mediterranean Sea all the way through Palestine, you get up north and it starts to bend towards kind of, uh, kind of towards our part of the world. Right there, uh, about 15 miles off the Mediterranean Sea, is the city of Antioch. And there was a famous river, the Orontes River, which kind of went from the Mediterranean Sea to Antioch and it made Antioch a major port city. Now get this, Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. There are only two cities in the Roman Empire that are larger than Antioch. The one city is Rome. The other one is Alexandria. All right, so you got Alexandria, big city. Rome, obviously big city. Then Antioch. It's one of the most important, huge, massive cities. There's anywhere between 500 and 800,000 people living in Antioch. Now, here's the thing about the city of Antioch. It was a commercial city because of its river and off the Mediterranean, city, uh, uh, Mediterranean Sea. And the second thing was it was a cosmopolitan city, which meant that it had a lot of different like races and ethnicities, and it was very mixed kind of bag. Lots of different colored people and different languages and different Gentiles and Jews and everything like that. It was kind of the melting pot kind of type place, okay? It was very cosmopolitan. But here's the third thing that's very important for you and I. It was incredibly immoral. Sexually, it was very promiscuous. It was very culturally kind of uh, what, what you and I as Christians would consider just really, really, really immoral. In fact, uh, the, the famous, the patron gods there were Apollo, God, the god Apollo from Greek mythology, and then Daphne, the goddess, all right? And the mythology said that Apollo chased down and, 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 and loved Daphne and, and all of this, and that Daphne got turned into a, a grove of bushes. And outside of the city of Antioch was this grove of bushes that liturgically, religiously, they said, hey, that's a, sacred, that's a sacred grove of bushes. And at nighttime, it became an outdoor brothel, and people would go out to this grove of, of bushes, and they would, they, would, uh, they would participate in this kind of sexually illicit behavior for religious and spiritual reasons. And even the rest of the Roman Empire looked at Antioch and said, Man, I mean, pagan, heathen people looked at Antioch and said, man, those people are really immoral. You know what I mean? In fact, when Rome began to get immoral, writers would say, you know, the, the filth of the Orontes River has, has overflown into the, into the, uh, the, uh, the river here in, in Rome. What is that river? The Tiber River. 
right? Isn't that right? And so the filth of, of this place is overrun. So it was famous for its immorality. So again, we ask ourselves, how in the world did this city become the hub of the most important Christian movement ever in the history of Christianity? How did Jesus and the gospel of Jesus take root in such an immoral area? I mean, it's kind of like you and I looking at Las Vegas and saying, man, out of Las Vegas is going to come the most important church in the whole wide world. You know what I mean? Uh, How did this happen? And this text begins to give us the answer to that. Let me give you a few answers to that for our own application. And we ask ourselves, how can we make a difference for Jesus in a culture that we are living in? Highly tolerant. We live in a cosmopolitan culture. We live in a diverse culture. We live in a sexually immoral culture. How can Jesus possibly make a dynamic, dramatic difference? Um, And so we come here and we ask that question. And the first answer to that question is make it real. Make the Christian gospel real. Look again at verse 20. It says, But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a, gr- a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, that word Hellenist, in some of your uh, translations, it's going to say that they were, spoke to the Greeks also. Really, uh, correctly, the original manuscripts does say Hellenist, but what it means in context is not Hellenist Jews, but Greek-speaking Gentiles. That's what that's referring to. And this is the first time that the church is intentionally taking the gospel and saying, we are going to reach Gentiles for Jesus. Now, we learned about Cornelius last week, and Cornelius sought out the Christian gospel to Peter. He wanted to know what Christianity was about, so he sought out the church as a Gentile. But here the church is seeking out Gentiles and saying, we are going to go to Gentiles and speak to them. Now, the key thing here is there in verse 20 where it says, so they spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now before, right, when Peter preached and all the sermons that we've looked at up to this point before, Peter would, would preach Jesus as the Christ. And the reason why he preached Jesus as the Christ is because the title Christ is a messianic term. It's a Jewish messianic term. And so typically all of the sermons up to this point was, I want you to know that Jesus is the Christ. But here, because they're reaching out to Gentiles, the language changes and they begin to preach that Jesus is the Lord. And what's that tell us? What that tells us is that the key to reaching people in a pagan world, in a heathen world, in a world of immorality, in a world that's never even, that's not even familiar with God, as we understand God as revealed in Scripture by the prophets and the apostles, the key thing is to make the Christian gospel understandable to where they're at. If a church or Christians are going to make a difference and make a dent in this world for the Christian gospel, what we have to do is we've got to make the message of Jesus understandable to where people are at. Does that make sense? you got to make it real. you got to make it real. You, you, can't, you can't make the Christian message not understandable. you got to make it understandable to where people are dealing with it in their own terms. We call that contextualization. 
You have to contextualize the gospel. You've got to sing about it in a way that people can understand it. You've got to preach it in a way that people can understand it. You've got to live it out in a way that people can understand it. You've got to make the Christian gospel real. This is an important point. You know, we've had, um, uh, when you think about the way that we do our ministry here at Crosspoint, one of the things that we try to do is we try to have popular appeal in our expression We try to have popular appeal, sometimes in the way we talk or even the way we dress. We try to have popular appeal in our our music, and yet we want to have biblical substance and make that biblical substance real and have meaning and depth and to apply it clearly to people's lives. How can the church really reach a heathen people, and that is to make the Christian gospel real? You can't continue to do things in a traditional way that's old or ancient or is like, uh, well, this is the way we've always done it, and if you don't understand it like that, well, then it's too bad for you. What you have to do is constantly say, how can we make the Christian gospel real? we got to make it real. But while we make it real, look at verse 21. We also have to believe that God is going to empower us and bless our efforts as we preach and speak the gospel in ways that people can understand. You see that in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That's so important. Because what we have to do is while we're making it real, see, we have our part to do, which is to make it real, but, but we have to also believe that God is going to bless, and we have to expect that God is going to reach people through our words, through our actions, through our ministry, through all of our efforts to make things real. One of the things that I've struggled with and that God's really kind of been dealing with me on, and maybe he's been dealing with you on it, but I've really just struggled with being negative cynical how many of y'all are struggling with sin don't raise your hand that would be uncomfortable especially with the preacher standing here in the aisle like this This is just really intimidating but you know in my own life God's been really dealing with me I think 2014 will be remembered in my life as the year that God started confronting me about my cynicism my negativity and going oh we can't do anything It's not going to work out. Nothing's going to work. These people are too far gone. I think it's rooted in me. I started getting cynical, I think, in my life a few years ago when I started watching political TV all the time. (laughs) You start watching politics, man. You start getting cynical. You're like, man, this this just sucks. I don't care. You know, and then, and then if you get any critics at all, they come to you, they start getting critical of you. Then you're like, yeah, well, it's not going to work out for you either then, is it? <laughs> you start getting cynical. If you live in an Antioch culture, a commercial, cosmopolitan, tolerant, radically diverse, philosophically tolerant, a world that's clearly not Christian, a culture that wouldn't even know Christianity if it slapped them upside the face, and you're living in that kind of political environment, you get cynical. And what it means to be cynical is you see through things. You see, you see through everything. You're like, I, I see what's going to really happen here. I mean, it, it kind of looks like there's an opportunity there, but I see through it. I know what's going to happen. It's all going to go bad. Or I see what her agenda is or what his agenda is. And and you begin to get negative and cynical and you begin to think. And you know what I see here? I see a church that's not cynical. 
I see a church that's believing. I see a church and Christians going, Jesus has defeated death and he's given us this mission and we have the Holy Spirit and we're going to go to the city of Antioch, the third largest city in Rome, the most immoral city, maybe next to Corinth in Rome, and we're going to take the Holy Spirit, we're going to take this message, we're going to make it understandable to the people, we're going to contextualize and contend for the gospel, and while we're doing that, we're going to pray, believing that God will do great things in people's lives. Hey, listen, let me tell you all something. You know what? When I began to figure out that politics was making me overly negative, I began to limit it in my life. Because Jesus is more important than being a Republican or a Democrat or what the President of the United States is doing. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. And if you're becoming so negative and cynical that you don't like certain groups of people and you hope that they go to hell while these people go to heaven... Dude, you need to step back for a minute and go, look, God's put me in this world to impact people for God. I'm going to impact people for God. I'm going to represent and be his ambassadors. I am an exile and an alien living in a strange land, and I'm here to represent Jesus and his coming kingdom because that is the hope for humanity. You see what I'm saying? Man, this week, I was reading scripture this week, and, and I read this verse. I wanted to share it with you. But I love this verse, and you guys have heard this verse before, but this is just something I've been meditating on this week even. But Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. It says, trust in the Lord. Now, man, let that sink in. Can I get an amen? Amen. Trust in the Lord. He is still on the throne. He's still sovereign over all. He has us in this time and this place for a reason. It's for such a time as this that you and I are walking out of this church today, going back to our workplaces, going back to our family, going back to our culture. Trust in the Lord and do good. Be positive. Do good. Be the person that's different because everybody around you is cynical. Let me tell you something about everybody in your culture right now. They are very negative right now. They love being negative. They love it. And they have no other choice. They're thirsty and hungry and they're living in a dry and thirsty land spiritually and they're walking around and their heads are bowed low. And if your head is up and you're doing good, you will make an impact in people's lives. You will have opportunities for God. You will have eternal opportunities in people's lives. Trust in the Lord and do good. Now watch this. Dwell in the land. Don't leave it. Don't run from it. Dwell there. Live there. Say, yes, 21st century society is jacked, but I'm going to dwell in this land and in this time And I am going to befriend faithfulness. I'm going to befriend faithful. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to literally in the Hebrew it says feed on faithfulness. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be faithful. Watch this. Delight yourself in the Lord. Now I'm not saying, look. I am not saying that we should not be politically informed. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be informed of what's going on. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't call sin, sin, and say, say to our family and to our children, that is not right. 
oftentimes with my girls, we'll be watching even, even a really G-rated movie. And I'll pause the movie and say, dude, that's, what that is is pagan. And my little girl will go, what's pagan, daddy? I'll be like, the tree flapping around and people worshiping it, not good. Right? But, so I'm not saying we don't get informed, but here's the deal. Before you go and get informed on what's going on, take some time and delight yourself in the Lord. How many of you all are spending regular time delighting in the Lord, feeding on the goodness of the Lord, feeding on the brightness of God so that your hatred and your anger and, your, and, and, and all the negative stuff that's eating you up, all that cynicism is being washed out and flushed out by being in the presence of God. Delight yourself in the Lord. And watch this. He will give you the desires of of your heart. You know what? I got a theory about this church in Antioch. I think that's what they're doing. I think that's what they're doing. I think they're living. And, you know, everybody's going, hey, what happens at the grove stays at the grove. Right? And I think these Christians are going, you know what? I'm believing God. I'm trusting God. I'm going to befriend faithfulness. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to delight in God. And then I'm going to share him. And I think they began to make an impact. And the church began to grow. You see what I'm saying? Making it real is doing the hard work of making the Christian gospel understandable to the people that you're ministering to as a church and as Christians. But the second thing, making it real, is is making sure that you're in the presence of God, you're trusting God, you're believing that God is going to do above and beyond all you could ever ask for or imagine, believing that he will work even in such a world of darkness. Let me tell you a secret. The problem with the world is not that it's getting any darker than it's ever been. The world has always been dark. The world is culture and society has always been of blackest darkness. It's always been lost. It's always been heathen. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Antioch is just like our own day. But you know what changes from time to time is our believers being brighter. Our believers being the light is our glow and our effectiveness and our, and, our, and our faithfulness and our trusting in God. Is it getting brighter and brighter in such a dark world? You see, they're making it real. That's how they did it. Make it real. Now, here's the second thing. You say, how can this church and how can any church, how can our church and our lives, how can we make a difference for Jesus in a time such as this? Here's the second thing. Lead, lead with encouragement. Lead with encouragement. And what happens is the church begins to grow. And it's a bunch of lay people that are leading this church to growth. It's planted there in the Antioch. And they need some leadership. And, uh, and so look at verse 22. Now watch this. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem which is going to make them a little nervous. There's the Jewish Christians going, huh, Antioch. We better send somebody. <laughs> this could go bad. That's a pre- Did you, have you heard about the Grove, James? James is like, yeah, it's pretty bad. So they're like, we got to send somebody. And so they send the perfect guy. And this, this tells us that what's on the, the heart of these Christians in Jerusalem is not anything negative. They're not like, I doubt it's really going well there. It can't be going well there. I think because of who they choose, they're going, man, we just need to encourage these new believers. And so they send the perfect guy. They send Barnabas. 
They sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, if you're kind of new to our church and you haven't been following this series, that's okay, because each sermon should stand on its own. But let me remind you, and just take your, take your uh, Bibles and just go back to Acts chapter 4, and let's look at the first time we looked at Barnabas and see why he is the perfect leader for this church. He is so perfect for this church. Acts chapter 4, verse 36. This is when we were first introduced to Barnabas. Acts chapter 4, verse 36, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this guy is so phenomenal, he gets a nickname. His nickname means son of encouragement. He's such an encouraging guy. Um, He's just awesome. He's always going around the church there in Jerusalem, hugging people, and he's always encouraging people and saying, you can do it, man. And I mean, he's just awesome. And not only that, he's a native of Cyprus, and of course, it's Cypriot uh, Hellenist Jews who went to Antioch and began to speak to them, and that probably means that Barnabas knows the Greek language, which is what you need to, to minister in Antioch. So he's kind of perfect with his cultural background. And so when we take that, that passage and then we go back, go back to Acts chapter 11, and we look at verse 24, look at verse 24, it says, he was a good man. Jesus used to say, or people around Jesus used to say, well, no one is good except for, except for God. You can't call anybody good except for God. Um, that's what Jesus said. And yet it, here it says that Barnabas is called a good man. That's the only time anybody's called a good man in the book of Acts. And why was he a good man? Well, it's not because he was God, but because he was filled by God. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was filled with faith. Now, hear it again. See, Barnabas was not a cynical guy. Barnabas was filled with faith. And what it means there is that Barnabas is the guy that's like, I'm believing great things for you, man. I'm believing great things for our church. I'm believing great things for you new believers. I'm believing great things for you, man. You see, every church needs some Barnabases walking around. Can I get an Amen. Man, we need some encouraging people. People like, I'm believing great things for you. And even when you're like having the worst day of your life, your circumstances are all jacked up, everything's gone wrong, you know, the, you lost the job and, you, and, and, you, and you've fallen down and, and, and you got critics on you. Everybody needs the Barnabas that comes down and you're just sitting there and you're barely breathing. You're like, I cannot make it another day in my life. And everybody needs that Barnabas like looks, looks at you while you're laying there going, man, God's got big things for you. And you're like, Really? This is the perfect guy to send to this situation. He is a leader who leads with encouragement. And in a church context and in a church culture, that is really what you need. And we say, well, what, what's that look like exactly? Well, look at verse 23. Uh, encouraging leaders, number one, They rejoice in the grace of God. Now, that sounds real simple. Look at verse 23. It says, when he came, he he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. Now, you're like, well, duh. But you know what? You'd be really surprised, actually, 
at how many people in the church don't celebrate God's grace. Barnabas is coming, and he's seeing that these really sinful people with horrible past, they've spent time at the grove of Apollo. They have, they have done things that would make even you and I in our culture blush, and yet they've become Christians. And when he sees the grace of God, he says, that is awesome that you love God. That is awesome That you love Jesus. I love the fact. And I'm rejoicing with you. That you are saved not by works. You're saved by grace. You're saved by the unconditional love of God coming into your life. You're not saved because you look religious. You're not saved because you look Jewish. You look very Gentile. In fact, you're eating what I consider to be pretty disgusting food. Yet God has saved you, and I'm willing to sit at this table with you. I'm willing to pull myself up to your dinner table where you're eating things I would never even consider clean. And I'm willing to have fellowship with you, even though you've been in places I can't even imagine what you've done with your body and with your mind. And I am glad for you. I am happy for you. You A church that makes a difference in a culture like ours has to celebrate grace. Has to. And has to accept people where they are at. Say, everybody say that. Say, where they are at. You have to accept people where they're at. And Barnabas isn't expecting them to become super spiritual overnight either. Or to get their life all together, all overnight. He's just saying, yep, that's right. You're saved by grace. Not because of anything that you've done. But because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. He died in your place. He, he defeated death. You believed. And by faith in Jesus, through grace, you've been saved. And I am glad about that. I wouldn't want it any other way. I wouldn't want you to look different. I wouldn't want you to sound different. I wouldn't want you to think different. And he's encouraging them in grace. But here's the second thing. Now watch this. He celebrates grace, but he exhorts them. It says here, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Literally, in the Greek, it means to remain steadfast or to remain purposed in heart. That the purpose of their heart would remain steadfast in the Lord. If you have an NIV translation at home or maybe even today, your NIV says to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And he's exhorting them. And you know what he's saying? He's like, I love where you're at. I love what God's doing. But here's what I want you to do. See, Barnabas is doing this. Barnabas is saying, I get it. He's accepted you where you're at. But what I need you to do is commit every day your heart to the Lord. And listen to him and let him lead you in your life and let him let purpose afresh in your heart every day that you're going to continue to hear him. Don't let your Christian salvation just be a shot in the arm and now I got my fire insurance and now I'm going to do whatever I want to do. No, 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 no. No, keep your heart connected to God's heart. Keep your fellowship to God's fellowship. And that's important because why? Because God's going to begin to change people. He's going to begin to guide them in new places. You see, that's leadership that is encouraging. I read a book um, a while back, actually, uh, and the title of the book is a 
book for pastors. The title of the book is Comeback Churches. And it talks about how churches can make a comeback uh, if they're kind of down or they've plateaued or they're stagnant or whatever. And, he, and, and in this book, it's written by Ed Stetzer, and he talks about spiritual leadership. And here's what he said about leadership in this book, which I think is telling. He said, leadership is a person involved in a process of influencing and developing a group of people in order to accomplish a purpose by means of supernatural power. Let me read that to you again. Spiritual leadership in the church is a person involved in a process of influencing and developing a group of people in order to accomplish a purpose by means of supernatural power. That's exactly what Barnabas is doing. He's encouraging, he's influencing, he's developing a group of people to accomplish a purpose for their life by means of God's power and not their own. Now, there's two applications for us. First of all, if you have any role in leadership in the church, any at all, life group leaders, elders, deacons, deaconesses, administration board, uh, if you have any influence or leadership, let Barnabas be your model. Okay, Celebrate grace, exhort people in their, in their heart, in their relationship to the Lord. Use, supernatural, uh, use the means of supernatural power to influence people. But here's the second thing. If you're a new believer, you're not a leader. Choose leaders in your life who are like Barnabas. Get around leaders in your life who will mentor you who are like Barnabas. Does that make sense? Here's the thing about Barnabas. Barnabas was a great follower before he was a great leader. Did you know that? He's, he got chose by the, the church, came to him and said, Barnabas, we want you to go to Antioch. And you know what he said? He was like, okay. And you know what that shows us? He was a good follower. He knew who his leaders were. He knew who his, his authority was. He listened to his authority. He said, what do you want me to do? And when they said, we want you to go to Antioch, which was a pretty challenging task, he was willing to go. So before he was a leader, he was a follower. And before you can be a leader in the church, before you can be a leader in culture, before you can influence people, you have to put yourself under the leadership of somebody and, and commit to it, see? Now, that, that's difficult for us Americans because we're pretty independent. We're like, I can figure this out on my own. I got this. No, you don't have this. You need to come under the umbrella of leadership and be influenced, but choose your leaders well because God expects you to submit to your leaders. So you need to choose leaders who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are positive, who, are, who, who know what they believe and know where they're going, you need to choose leaders who are like Barnabas because God expects you to submit to those leaders and to be influenced by them. And until you can submit to leadership, you can't be a good leader. You see, uh, churches are filled sometimes with leaders who haven't been developed by other leaders because they don't submit. Barnabas is not like that. So whichever the application might be for you, that's what you need to apply. But ultimately, the reason why this church made inroads in the culture like they were living in and the way we're going to make inroads in the culture we're living in is to lead with encouragement. Lead with encouragement. Now, here's the final thing today. The final thing today is number three. We need to teach for transformation. What happens is, 
is once they've contextualized and once they've led well, what happens is, is the church continues to grow even more. You see that in verse 20, uh, you see that in verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. So that's the second time in this text, verse 21, a great number of people believed, turned to the Lord, so leadership was needed. Now, because of leadership, more people are added to the church. And so Barnabas needs to go get an associate pastor or somebody to come help him along here. And so verse 25, uh, watch this, this is great stuff. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, I love this because Saul the persecutor, we saw his conversion in Acts chapter 9. And we also saw in Acts chapter 9, he got in trouble there in Jerusalem. He barely escapes with his life. And last time we saw Saul, he was going to his hometown Tarsus. And so he goes to Tarsus and and we don't hear from him again. And according to Galatians chronology, and when you take Galatians chapters 1 and 2 and you take the book of Acts, what you begin to realize is that it's been 10 years. Now, everybody get that. Saul the persecutor has been away from any significant ministry that we know of for 10 years around or in his hometown. And the only reason he gets pulled back into the dynamic of the book of Acts is because Barnabas goes to look for him. And according to the text, it seems like Barnabas really has to kind of search around and it might not have been an easy task and so forth. But he finds Saul and you know, it's... It's really tempting. It's just really tempting to speculate what was going on in Saul's life. You know, because you've got to wonder. I mean, here's Saul. He had this dramatic conversion. And Jesus said, man, I've got big things for you. And you're going to do great things. And you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna preach to Gentiles and kings. And he must have been like, right on. I mean, fist pump. Yes. And then you know what God did to him? God put him on the shelf for a decade. And nothing exciting really happened. Now, he probably was witnessing. He was probably trying to do stuff around his hometown. But nothing dramatic happened, nothing dynamic, nothing that seemed to measure what Jesus had revealed to him on that road to Damascus alongside of the ministry of Ananias in Acts chapter 9. And so here we are 10 years later. And you know what that shows us is that sometimes God takes time in our life to develop us before we can have an impact for Jesus. And sometimes God trains us and gives us significant moments. And it was in those 10 years that he began to formulate his theology that we would get in the book of Romans. It was in the 10 years that he began to formulate the theology we would get in Ephesians. It was in that 10 years that we began to, he began to develop the theology we would get in the book of Galatians. And maybe he was discouraged, but he was working and he was praying and he was thinking and he was reading the Bible and he was putting it all together. And then the next thing you know, right when he was thinking, you know, maybe this is not going to happen. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe Jesus is not going to use me. Knock, knock, knock. And guess who's at the door? The son of encouragement. And in opens this door of opportunity and Barnabas says to him, Are you ready? And Saul's like, yes. And he goes, come to me because I'm taking you to a jacked up place where there's a grove of Apollo. And and, and we got all these new Christians and I'm overwhelmed. And all I know how to do is encourage people. But you can teach them. You can teach them. And so he takes Saul to Antioch. And it would forever change 
Saul's life, and it would change our lives as well. And what does Saul do? In verse 26, it says that he taught. He taught a great many people. In fact, he taught for a whole year. Say, so what's the significance of that? Well, all you got to do is just, you got a bunch of heathens that have become Christians. That's what you got. And they have no clue. They have no clue what a Christian life looks like. And the difference between teaching and preaching in the book of Acts is that when you preach, you're preaching for conversion. You're preaching for people to repent and believe in Jesus and get baptized. But when you teach, you're teaching believers and edifying so that they can grow in their faith, so that they can understand. Teaching is guiding believers into the way that they should go as believers, as followers of Jesus. And so Saul is coming into this church and he goes, look, here's how money looks biblically. Look, here's how sex looks biblically. Look, here's how power and politics looks biblically. This is how you make real the teaching of Jesus. And this is a part of the Great Commission is teaching, isn't it? In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 in the Great Commission. Now watch what Jesus says carefully here. Jesus says in Matthew chapter uh, 28, verse 18, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So therefore, so go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now there's your crisis and conversion moment. Crisis and conversion, baptizing. And then, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When you're in a culture in crisis and you're trying to connect the riches of Christ, you've got to take time and open up the Bible and teach new believers what they are to believe and what the Christian life looks like. Let me give to you another great passage on this. In fact, it comes from Paul. The very one we're talking about. And Paul says that scripture is what is profitable for teaching. Second, Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When you under, see, what we're talking about is why we do things the way we do it here at Crosspoint. Right? We want to contextualize and make, make it understandable. We want to have good leadership. But ultimately, you've got to have good Bible teaching. You've got to have depth and substance in Bible teaching. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says to Timothy, Hey, listen, Timothy, you're a pastor of a church. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what Saul was doing in Antioch. He was saying, here we go. This is the way it goes. And I, I love it where, where it says, it says, equipped for every good work. That's a word, in, it's a Greek word that was used to describe a, a boat that had a favorable wind. And that favorable wind would equip the sail so that the boat could begin to go towards the destination that it was looking to go to. 
And what this means is, is that God has a destination for us. He has a destination for our, our whole life, everything, our marriage and our parenting and our, our love and our relationships and everything in our life, God has a destination. And the way that we get the wind in ourselves so that we can go to the destination that God wants us to go to is we open up the book and we talk about it and we say, what does God say about this issue in my life? And as believers, we listen to God and we follow God and we let his scripture teach and guide us. In a culture in crisis, you've got to have depth of teaching. Some churches, in the name of reaching out and contextualizing, they don't ultimately contend for a biblical worldview. And you've got to. Saul was the perfect guy. See, Barnabas is coming around, and Barnabas is hugging him. I love the grace of God in your life. I love the fact that you know that you're, you're saved by grace. I love the fact that, that, you, that, you, that, that you know that it's not by your works. It's, it's by your faith in Jesus that makes you right. And then Saul's coming in, and he's going, here's how it goes. And that's what you need as a church. You need encouraging people that loves people where they're at. And then you need the guy that stands up and goes, this is the way it goes. No, you cannot go to the Grove of Apollo anymore. Amen? No, you can't go to Vegas because what happens in Vegas really doesn't stay there. You take it with you into bondage. No, it does matter what you look at on the computer. No, it does matter who you live with. It does matter that you go into debt or you decide not to go into debt. It does matter to God and to Jesus the words that you say. Yes, you are loved unconditionally. Yes, it's by grace. Yes, 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 yes. It's by Jesus' work that you're made right with God. But now God wants to grow you up and mature you. Colossians 1.28. We teach everyone, admonishing them in Christ so that they might be mature. So many verses speak to this idea of teaching. And you've got to connect the riches of Christ and his worldview to the realities of life. And you've got to guide people. And that's what we try to do here at Crosspoint. And the application for us is that you guys need to come. You need to come to church, no matter where you're at with God. You need to bring your Bible or bring your phone with a Bible on it or an iPad. Bring whatever technology you need. And you need to open up the book with us and you need to take notes or remember what Pastor Josh says or if God's giving you insight. And when God reveals something to you that you're like, oh, I didn't know that before. I'm kind of not doing it like that. Then you need to repent and walk in what God has given to you through his scripture. Let the word of God be sufficient. Let it be a wind. Let it carry you to the destination that God has for you. Because the destination that God has for you is a good destination. His will is good and perfect and pleasing. It's what brings satisfaction. It's what frees us and liberates us from any kind of bondage. That's what Saul is doing in this church. Isn't that great? You see, we need to make it real. We need to lead with encouragement. And we need to teach for transformation. Well, let me finish off this chapter and then we'll be done. Verse 27. Uh... Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 
This church, Antioch, they were not afraid of supernatural stuff. They were not afraid of any of the spiritual gifts. This Agabus had the spiritual gift of prophecy. Maybe we'll take some time and, and break that down sometime. But verse 29, so the disciples determine, based on this famine that's going to happen, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It is interesting in verse 30 that there's elders now in Jerusalem. All we knew about was the the deacons in Acts chapter 6. Some scholars think that those seven deacons, minus Stephen, and maybe replaced by somebody else, became elders. Nobody really knows for sure, but that's the first time that the church in Jerusalem does not describe the apostles handling the money. They say elders handled the money. So there's a shift in the way the church is organizing and, 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 and administrating its work. But the important thing is, is that by this prophecy, the disciples begin to give back and be generous. And these new believers who are being taught by Saul begin to understand that generosity is the, is the, is the really perfect expression of belief in the gospel. They're giving back to this church that had given them the gospel. They are beginning to practice generosity. I might say that, you know, you cannot be effective in a culture in crisis unless you are generous. And we need to continue to be generous. This is a very generous church, by the way. Most of you really understand that point. But it's important pastorally to continue to press that into our congregation that generosity is a critical aspect of making a difference in this world. We can't make a difference in this world without generosity. And Agabus being a prophet, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament uh, were all about social justice. And they were about providing for the orphans and for the widows, as well as the people repenting and believing in the Lord. So it's appropriate that Agabus is called a prophet, although the spiritual gift of prophecy might be a little different than the Old Testament gift of prophecy, which again is another discussion. But this church was a generous church, and we need to be a generous church. And so while I'm not going to develop that any further today, we could add that as a fourth kind of quick point. Generosity is very important for the mission of the church. Make it real, lead with encouragement, teach for transformation, and be generous as a church. All the time, believing that God is going to do above and beyond all we could ever ask for or imagine. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this text and, uh, and just for these ideas. Had it not been for the willingness of these Christians to kind of get... <laughs> get uncomfortable in an awkward city, in a, in a context that um, was promiscuous, in a context that was immoral. Had they not been willing to get uncomfortable in that text and dwell in the land and to feed on faithfulness and to trust you and to do good, then this church would not be here today. We would not be believers in Jesus today. And so now, God, we're asking for the grace for you to apply these things to our own heart and to give us wisdom as we seek to apply it and to celebrate it in our church. And so, God, continue to bless us. And if you're somebody here today and and you're not a Christian, let me invite you to become a Christian right now. It doesn't require you coming forward. It doesn't require uh, any kind of special water or holy water or All it requires is really stopping in your own life and saying, Jesus died for me, and I'm ready. I'm ready to believe in Jesus. I'm ready to be liberated from this culture and this world. I'm ready to be liberated from my sin. 
And Jesus said, all who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And here's what you need to say. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. Come into my life. I believe you're alive and well and that you have power that can transform my life. I call on your name, your name alone. Save me. If you can pray something simple like that, then you will be saved. You will become a Christian right now. So if anybody has not made that decision, I encourage you and invite you to come and believe in Jesus. For the rest of us, let's stand and worship Jesus as we close our service.